Hi, my name is uh, Daniel Paps. I'm Managing Director of Paps Licensing, and I have the pleasure to be on IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert, We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 92 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is Daniel Pabst of Pabst Licensing. And we will talk about his company, a patent enforcement company, and about patent enforcement in general, and in particular about the uh, patent enforcement in the US and the UPC. Before we jump into the interview, I have a couple of things to tell you. It is now clear who has filed the complaint with the German Constitutional Court against the UPC, uh, the ratification of the UPC agreement. It is the Düsseldorf attorney Ingwer Stierna. He has been with a couple of larger law firms in the past, but has been a a solo practitioner for a while now. And he has been known to be very critical of the UPC. The German Constitutional Court has already asked about 22 organizations to file their briefs. But now the Constitutional Court has asked three more organizations, and in particular the Deutsche Vereinigung für Gewerblichen Rechtsschutz und Urheberrecht, GRUR, G-R-U-R, the largest organization of IP professionals in Germany, then the European Patent Litigators Association, EPLIT, and the Association of the German Industry, Bundesverband der Deutschen Industrie, BDI. It is expected that the decision of the German Constitutional Court will be delayed by this new development and it is not currently clear when a decision can be expected. Some people think that we will see a decision in the second quarter of 2018. Then a completely different topic. Is there something like a trademark troll? Michael Gleisner has now registered over 4,400 trademarks across 38 jurisdictions around the world. These are mostly well-known trademarks that have not been registered in some jurisdictions by the original trademark holders and are now registered by Michael Gleisner in the basically white spots. An investigation by the World Trademark Review has uncovered or revealed that in the beginning of November 2017 that an additional 2,000 trademarks were discovered. So now there are a total of 4,400 trademarks in the name of Michael Gleisner, mostly well-known trademarks where the trademark owner has probably forgotten to or omitted to register these trademarks in some jurisdictions. I am myself involved in an opposition involving a Michael Gleisner trademark, so let's see how this will work out. People don't know yet what the business model of Michael Gleisner will be with all these trademarks. 
Lexology just reported that the Supreme Court is hearing a huge blockbuster patent case. The case is called the Oil States case. And why is this such a big deal? It is about the constitutionality of the inter-parties review procedures, the IPRs. Many lawyers are uncertain how this case will be ruled, how the decision will be. However, most large patent applicants have filed amicus courier briefs supporting the IPR system. Basically, most of them argued that they are only interested in strong patents that are enforceable. Now, let's jump into this week's interview with Daniel Pabst. I'm very excited to be joined by Daniel Pabst today. If you don't know who Daniel is, he is a patent attorney and managing director of Pabst Licensing GmbH and Co. KG in Germany. Pabst Licensing is one of the leading patent enforcement companies in Germany and maybe worldwide. And Daniel Pabst is also listed as one of the key strategists in many rankings. And I'm very grateful to have you on the show today. Thank you for being on the show. And thanks so much for having me. So when I was young, your company was known for computer fans and cooling solutions, and now you are enforcing patents. Uh, what? Uh, how did that happen? That's a, a quite broad question. Uh, originally, my family started a company uh, called Pabst Motorn, my grandfather, 75 years ago. And uh, he was also very sensitive to protecting the respective IP that was brought up by himself, but also by the engineers in the company, Pabst Motorn. And uh, so a patent portfolio grew up, which ended up uh, being around 600 patents and pending applications in the early 1990s, which is when Pabst Motorn was going through financial difficulties. Our banks at the time were not sensitive to patents at all. Uh, they gave the patent portfolio a value of zero. My father saw a substantial uh, chance to generate revenue from the patent portfolio and decided after the company had to be sold under pressure from the banks to buy back the patent portfolio and start monetizing the respective um, assets basically by approaching former competitors in the market and um, acquiring products from them, trying to uh, verify that they use respective patents and uh, then starting negotiations about licensing the respective uh, portfolio to the respective companies. And since that uh, worked fairly well, and uh, it was also quite a bit more successful than originally anticipated, the idea grew to turn this patent monetization uh, approach from only enforcing the former originally patent um, portfolio that, that was originally owned by the uh, family into a service for other people and in the beginning other patent attorneys approached us and uh, they mentioned hey we have some clients that have patents but they themselves do not want to uh, monetize or 
uh, enforce their patents or they don't know how to do that. And uh, this is how this broader approach to uh, patent monetization and enforcement came about. Mm -hmm. And um, you have grown to be one of the bigger players in the field of patent enforcement worldwide today. And you are also enforcing patents in Europe and in US and actually in many countries. Um, and you're enforcing patents also in very uh, lucrative fields like in the automotive industry or smartphone industry. Um, who is your typical client? That is, uh, I think, somewhat changing. While uh, originally uh, we started uh, with a focus on SME, so small and medium-sized um, companies, um, sometimes also single inventors, um, uh, and at times startup companies that were uh, struggling. Um, these days the market is much broader uh, and especially in the U.S. there are brokers that, uh, that offer patents from uh, also global players like Panasonic, um, um, Pantac, for instance, or um, sometimes also large companies approach us directly um, like Siemens or IBM and they, um, they have respective uh, patents or portfolios that they ask us to take a look at uh, in order to uh, monetize them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, your clients are not recruited from small companies who don't know how to enforce patents, not only, but also fairly large companies uh, who have um, large portfolios and just need your expertise to enforce the patents, correct? I, I think that is correct. Um, the large companies, of course, have all the capabilities themselves, at least that's our belief. Um, some of them uh, focus on some core patents that they wish to monetize themselves and something more on the circumference or when the portfolios grow a little bit older, then they, um, they uh, made strategic decisions to sell those off or have someone else monetize it for them in a sense. Um, and so I, I'm not sure if there's a general rule that can be applied, but um, it is. Uh, it is true that uh, that also large companies that uh, that usually you would assume have the capabilities in house and and they do have the capabilities in house still reach out. Um, sometimes they call it uh, a lack of bandwidth because they can't deal with everything in their uh, large portfolios. Right. Um... Another question, um, how did uh, patent enforcement change in the last five years, in your opinion, and, and why did that change? Uh, we believe it has changed quite a bit in the last five years, certainly with respect to the U.S. Um, I think already about 10 years ago, um, Supreme Court decisions uh, started in the U.S. that were not helpful for patent owners um, like the eBay versus Merck Exchange uh, decision that basically took away injunctive relief from a patent owner who may just seek um, 
a compensation by a licensing fee or basically looks for damages rather than um, uh, for uh, or may just want to have damages rather than an, an injunctive relief um, and took away a very uh, important weapon, I would say, in the uh, or basically a core um, a core um, tool that that a patent really is, at least in my eyes, it's a right to exclude. And that's the original idea of patent, and that was taken away um, uh, about 10 years ago. And um, then certainly um, the U.S. legislation that brought about uh, interpartis review proceedings uh, in the America Invents Act has had a substantial impact um, because it's uh, certainly easier today to bring a validity challenge against a U.S. patent. And uh, I think that had a, had a big impact. We, when we talk to people selling patents, they uh, these days are much less enthusiastic because it is much harder for them to uh, bring respective assets to the market Due to uh, due to uh, uh, the higher risk that is uh, seen in uh, taking a U.S. patent in for monetization and uh, in in as such um, uh, with respect to the U.S. at least it's uh, it's a much harder field. The risks have gone up. The chances have gone down. Changes in damages law have also had an impact uh, there in the U.S. And on the other hand, there's more activity in Europe, um, especially, uh, I would say, in, in Germany. And um, the, the fact that there is a fairly efficient court system that uh, brings you a decision, maybe not always a decision that you're looking for, but at least in a fairly timely manner, you reach, uh, you get, get some guidance from the court and with an also overseeable uh, budget um, it is that is certainly helpful right um, you just touched on IPRs in the US uh, that has been a big change and um, some companies in the US are struggling how to deal with that new challenge um, in Europe we are quite used to that uh, we know oppositions we know um, cancellation actions and so on so we are actually quite used to that but uh, the US for for US patent owners it's a new thing um, and some are thinking of thinking of very strange new strategies like um, transferring all the patents to uh, native uh, Native Americans in tribes in the US uh, because they have um, some special rules about them um, so what do you think about the IPRs, the interpartis reviews in the US? I think in general, um, the idea of an independent validity challenge is, uh, is not a bad idea. Um, I don't have to tell you that in, in, in Germany, you mentioned that in, in Germany, uh, you can bring a validity challenge uh, without uh, uh, infringement suit being filed against you 
and um, uh, the I think the problem with the IPR proceedings is on the one hand that they use a different evidence standard. Um, it's not the clear and convincing evidence standard that you are facing in a validity challenge in district court in, in the U.S., but it's only, so to say, the preponderance of the evidence. And, um, and also it's a different claim interpretation standard, uh, a much broader claim interpretation standard, which it, sim- it seems simply unfair that there are two different standards applied, the one by the uh, PTAB, by the Patent uh, and Trademark Office uh, in the U.S., and, and the other one in district court. So it seems a little unfair that the rules have changed um, with those significant um, changes in the review standards. Um, on the other hand, the Indopartis review uh, proceeding in front of the uh, Patent and Trademark Administrative Board, they are um, really, they seem to be a little uh, a little biased towards let's get rid of those respective patents. At least statistically, um, I believe over 80% of uh, challenged claims are canceled and if you look at the statistics in respective district court litigation it is a substantially less amount of course we have a lot of uh, claims canceled in validity challenges also in germany but um, there seems to be less predictability and um, that's what brings more risk uh, into the equation of someone who's looking to monetize patents and there it doesn't matter if you're an IBM a Microsoft or uh, a PAPS licensing it is uh, simply uh, simply a much higher risk and a lot of people these days seem to uh, shy away because of this uh, this respective uh, higher risk right and uh, also uh, we might have to mention that even though there are, there is the possibility to challenge patents uh, without being um, sued in Germany, um, the chance that a patent is invalidated is only about a third, um, let's say, uh, 33%, or maybe sometimes 34 or 35% in some years in opposition proceedings, and um, another third um, chance. Uh, the patent is uh, amended, uh, the claims uh, have to be narrowed, and uh, in one-third of the chance the, the patent is held, uh, held up in full, with full claims. So um, that's uh, very different from 80% of all claims being cancelled in interpartis reviews. <laughs> Right, and in the IPR proceedings, it seems uh, a, a big challenge to amend the claims, which also seems a little unfair. Um, you're facing a tougher review standard, and then if you try to amend your claims by incorporating features, either from uh, the specification or uh, sometimes even from dependent claims, the the board may not may not allow uh, the respective uh, added 
features uh, in there, and that's that's just that seems not very fair. Yes. Um, let's see how that works out. <laughs> um, the, I think uh, the, some people already have strategies how to how to influence that system. <laughs> um, so you certainly also follow the developments around the Unified Patent Court in Europe um, as a patent enforcer. Uh, do you think this, uh, the UPC in general is a good or a bad thing? And, and why do you think that? We are very much looking forward to the Unified Patent Court. Uh, unfortunately, it's not here yet, but we believe uh, there is at least a groundwork made for an efficient proceeding uh, for a streamlined proceeding that uh, gives you certainty in an overseeable uh, time frame and uh, by that um, we believe it will be a, a helpful tool for every patent owner um, and uh, it certainly will cover a, a huge market of consumers and uh, by that we believe it's it's going to be uh, giving quite some um, some boost to uh, the European patent landscape and also the world taking a closer look at, at Europe for uh, for looking after monetizing or fighting respective patent battles. Right. And um, one question um, would be, um, you can, uh, patent owners can opt out of the system. And as I understand you, you wouldn't really opt out your patents. You would uh, try to use the new court system, basically. That's right. Um, at this point, we don't see a reason to opt out. I understand the arguments that pharmaceutical companies uh, bring about um, the the approach of not having all eggs in one basket and only one decision that might later challenge the validity of all the national parts. But in the uh, as my uh, mentor, becoming a patent attorney, said, not every patent is valid, um, and. Uh, it, it seems strange that a patent could be valid uh, in Germany but not valid in France and vice versa, even though we're potentially talking about the same exact claim language and uh, there should be the same interpretation uh, level. But um, uh, again, I understand pharmaceutical companies trying to hide, be, potentially trying to, behind, to hide behind that, but um, overall... Um, I, we certainly look forward to that centralized proceeding and, and its uh, efficient uh, possibilities to resolve uh, patent disputes. Mm -hmm. um, you know that um, a German attorney at law brought the whole ratification process to a screeching halt when filing a complaint with the German Constitutional Court not too long ago. Um, and people currently don't really know for sure whether this issue can be resolved before the actual Brexit of the UK. Um, what is your personal opinion? Will the UPC really become a reality? 
I am very much convinced that the UPC will become a reality. And the question uh, for me is really when will we see this? Uh, the Brexit certainly has uh, has an impact that is not really be foreseeable. Uh, will the UK ratify before they will exit uh, the EU or not? And, and how could they possibly do that? Um, but also that challenge in front of the German constitutional court. Um, it's remarkable that the constitutional court picked it up. Um, I believe the issue at hand is somewhat more focused on could the German parliament have elected or voted for this respective law with a 50% plus one vote majority or should they have had a, a qualified majority of uh, two thirds in the parliament um, I am uh, if I remember correctly uh, there were challenges of that nature before whenever uh, respective powers were given to the uh, EU and um, I'm hopeful that the uh, the German constitutional court will not say okay this is unconstitutional sorry go back to square one and uh, uh, which might throw things back years but uh, that they'll address it in a way that um, that makes it possible uh, for a, uh, a fairly uh, timely ratification uh, of Germany with the, with the UPC. Mm. Um, so what I hear you saying is that uh, you think that um, even if Germany would not ratify before the breakfast, uh, breakfast, I said Brexit, <laughs> Um, before the Brexit, um, if the UK uh, ratifies before the Brexit and then leaves the EU and then after the Brexit Germany ratifies the UPC agreement, that would still lead to a functioning UPC, right, in your opinion? <laughs> I mean, the question is then: uh, the question then is how will uh, how will the whole actual Brexit uh, be handled and the aspects of uh, handling uh, intellectual property and and the questions of uh, uh, will the UK then still be uh, allowed to host the the UPC Central Division for the. Uh, pharmaceutical and chemical um, aspects of technology in London. Um, I guess those are those are uh, questions that that have to be negotiated by the uh, people dealing with the uh, uh, the Brexit negotiations. Um, but um, I guess that's it's uh, at this point probably esoteric because it's there are too many unknown parameters to really come up with uh, what if um, uh, and, and how, how it'll actually turn out. I, I'm just, I guess I'm, I'm just hopeful it'll right. work out. We all, we all hope that yeah. <laughs> at least me and you hope that the UPC will become a reality uh, before the actual Brexit. <laughs> right. So um, how do you prepare for the UPC and for enforcing patents uh, using the system? I'm not sure um, 
how much there is for us to prepare for. We try to at least um, let the market know that we will uh, we're already located in the European Union, in the heart of the European Union in Germany, and uh, that um, we are an avenue also for um, companies and uh, patent owners from outside of the European Union to um, provide services for them in monetizing uh, European patents and that we will, uh, well, we will be ready once the UPC is up and running. Uh, apart from that, um, as we touched upon earlier, uh, we, we will not opt out um, with any of the patents that we, um, European patents and national respective national parts that we uh, currently have uh, under monetization. And as such, um, I think we're just trying to be trying to be ready when it comes. Again, we don't, all don't know when that happens, but um, uh, yeah, we we hope it'll be in the not too distant future. Right. Um, this has been a very interesting interview for our listeners, um, but unfortunately, we had too little time to really cover your whole business model and how you enforce patents. So if people have questions for you, where can they reach you best? Um, I think it's easiest either to give us a call um, or to find us uh, on the web, um, papslicensing.com, uh, or just Google my name, Daniel Pabst, and you will uh, not be guided to the beer, but to the... Uh, the patent monetization activity that we uh, that we offer, and um, so I I believe it's uh, those are probably the easiest easiest ways to reach out to us. Um, thank you very much for being on this interview. It's been a pleasure, and I appreciate having had the chance to chat with you about the issues we talked about. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer 
on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.